Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Volume 6, page 241. The third angel's message is the gospel message for the last day. Volume 6, page 20. The truth of the third angel's message have been presented by some in a dry theory. But in this message is to be presented Christ, the living one. We shall attempt to do that this morning, perhaps in a way that you haven't thought of. But first, here is the patience of the saints. Patience. You see, there's something more than an educated biblical knowledge that's involved here. Volume 3, page 253, we are fully sustained in our position by an overwhelming amount of plain scriptural testimony. There isn't any question about the truth. But we are very much wanting in Bible humility, patience, faith, love, self-denial, watchfulness, and self-sacrifice. We're talking here right now about Christian virtues, and the saints are to possess these qualifications. Patience, what does it mean? It means a steadfast endurance, a holding on, a not letting go, a determined effort, ever keeping our eye on the goal, never stopping. Matthew 24, 13. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Luke 21, 19. In your patience, possess your souls. As we enter this time of trouble that is an experience like this world has never seen before, let's not forget old Job. He lost every possession that he had, including his family, and he nearly lost his life. But as James puts it in 5.11, we have heard of the patience of Job. He never gave up. Let's become personal just a minute. Most every one of you have driven a car, or at least you are acquainted with a driver of a car, and you drive in a car many, many miles every week. You've all noticed drivers lose their patience. Somehow some of us don't seem to realize that the three angels' message deals with the personal life. Notice these quotations from volume 2, page 425, and you know I just marvel that we have a prophet in our church that writes as if she were alive today. It's just like turning the page of what happens right now. Notice this. When driving in the street, if full half of the road is not given you, you feel stirred in a moment. You will show all your besetting sins. Now she's talking to me this morning. Your very countenance will indicate an impatient spirit, and your mouth will seem always ready to utter an angry word. You know, when you drive along, as much as a minister does, hundreds and hundreds of miles in the work 
every week, and then some lunatic comes along and almost drives you off the street and into a tree, and you almost lose your life. There comes the temptation. And then, to even add to this, she connects it with a tobacco habit. And I've never smoked. It says, in this habit, I'm reading right on, as in the tobacco using, total abstinence is the only sure remedy. An enduring change must take place in you. You frequently feel that you must be more guarded. You resolutely say, I will be more calm and more patient. But in doing this, you only touch the evil on the outside. You consent to retain the lion and watch him. You must go further than this. Then she uses the text, Colossians 3, 3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Those who are dead to self will not feel so readily and will not be prepared to resist everything which may irritate. Dead men cannot feel. You see, then she says, you are not dead. Volume 1, page 131. Why is it so hard to lead a self-denying, humble life? Because professed Christians are not dead to the world. Then if I can quote that which I used in a previous sermon... It is easy living after we are dead. You see, the three angels' message talks of a total surrender, a dying to the things of this world, the cultivating of every Christian virtue such as love and joy and patience and courtesy and meekness and humility. And now, the commandments. Here are they that keep the commandments. You see, the three angels' messages and the law cannot be separated. They are inseparable. This law of God is so wondrous. As I think of it, I haven't heard a sermon I don't know in how many years on the law of God, and I wonder why. I used to hear it when I was a boy. And it's not because I've been a preacher in one church preaching myself that I haven't preached on it. Because in the general conference I have been all around the world everywhere visiting scores and scores and scores of churches. But I haven't heard a sermon in years on the law. Why? Could it be that Satan is trying to keep us from that which is a saving influence in our life? Notice these wonderful things out of the Word of God. I'm not going to give the text, but they're all quotes. Speaking of the law, it is a fountain of life. I delight in the law of God. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Law is truth. Blessed are they that keep the commandments. I walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Great peace have they which love thy law. I love them exceedingly. Keep and live. 
Sounds like a little bit of heaven, isn't it? I want to tell you the law of God is a bit of heaven. Let's take a little closer look. Are you ready? Revelations 11:19. The temple of God was open in heaven, and there was seen in the temp in His temple the ark of His testimony. The ark. We know that in the sanctuary on earth, which is a replica of the one in heaven, that it had the two compartments, and in the second compartment of the sanctuary, as in the early earthly sanctuary, it was open on the day of atonement. And since the Day of Atonement in the heavenly sanctuary began in 1844, we by faith may go in with our Lord before the ark and before the law. And everything in the sanctuary above represents God. There's the altar, the cross. There's the laver, the washing, the regeneration. There's the lamp. The light of Christ. There is the showbread, the word of God. There is the altar of incense in which Christ mingles His glorious righteousness with our prayers. And as we step up to the ark, there is the law. The ark contains two tables of stone. Let me read Great Controversy 4:34. Within the holy of holies, in the sanctuary in heaven, the law, divine law is sacredly enshrined. The law that was spoken by God Himself amid the thunders of Sinai, written with His own finger on the tables of stone. The law of God in the sanctuary in heaven is the great original of which the precepts inscribed upon the tables of stone and recorded by Moses in the Pentateuch were an unerring transcript. Wouldn't you like to look in the ark above? What would you see? Exactly what you see in Exodus 20, an unerring transcript. Now this law in heaven governs all heaven. Oh, but you say God governs very well. Great Controversy 4:34. The law of God being a revelation of His will, a transcript of His character. God governs, of course, He does. His law governs, for they are synonymous. When you talk of the will of God, you are talking about the commandments. Psalms 119:89 says, "Forever, O Lord, Thy word is settled in heaven." Psalms 111:7 and 8: All His commandments are sure; they stand fast forever and ever. And how the angels love to obey that law! And why shouldn't they? They have seen. In the great theater of this earth, what happens when man doesn't believe, or teach, or obey the law? Psalms 103:20. All his angels do his commandments. No wonder that in heaven is a place of peace and joy and happiness and truth and love and liberty and righteousness. Why? Because they are obeying the law. All these can be found today in the life of the one who obeys the law. God would have men in this earth enjoy the joy of heaven. In Sons of and Daughters of God, page two sixty-seven, it says the laws of God are so formed 
that they will promote happiness to those who keep them. And why don't we talk more about the law? Why aren't we just bubbling over with a wonderful law, talking about it, living it, and promoting it, and studying it, and searching it? Don't we want to be like God? You see, there is one thing that a man will defend, and that is his character. And God's law is his character. And though I'm a puny man, I feel like rising up and defending God when I hear someone say, well, let's not talk about the law. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandments holy and just and good. In fact, when you talk the law, you are talking love. For God is love, 1 John 4, 8. The law is a transcript of his character. His law is a revelation of his character. God's law is based on law, on love. Look at the commandments just a moment. Number one, love to God will admit no other God. Number two, love will not debase the object it adores. Number three, love to God will never dishonor his name. Number four, love to God will reverence his day. Five, love to parents will honor them. Six, hate, not love, is murder. Seven, love, lust, not love, commits adultery. Eight, love will give but never steal. Nine, love will not slander a lie. Ten, love's eye is not covetous. The whole commandments are nothing but based on love. We hear the cry, let's talk love, let's talk Christ. I say let's talk his law too because it's all one and the same. Love is found in every commandment. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Whether it's the Old Testament or whether it's the New Testament, it is all built upon the law. Every attribute of God is also given to his law. Consider just a few of them. Is God holy? The law is holy. Romans 7, 14. God is perfect. The law is perfect. Psalms 19, 7. God is just. The law is just. Romans 7, 12. God is pure. The commandment is pure. Psalms 19, 8. God is forever. His commandments are sure. They stand fast forever and ever. Psalms 111, 8. God is life. His laws were ordained to life. Psalm of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 522. The servant of the Lord states concerning God's law in the book Story of Redemption, God exalted them equal to himself. Now you just think that, over. 
These Ten Commandments have been exalted by God equal to himself. Why? Because they represent God, his character. The commentary, volume 1, page 1104, the ten holy precepts spoken by Christ upon Sinai's mountain were the revelation of the character of God. It's no wonder, then, that when they were given to man to refresh his mind of his requirements, that both God the Father and God the Son spoke together at the same time. Let me read that, Historical Sketches, page 231. When Israel came to Sinai, he took occasion to refresh their minds in regard to his requirements. Christ and the Father standing side by side upon the mount with solemn majesty proclaimed the Ten Commandments. My Life Today, page 41, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not, are ten promises. Don't we like to talk about promises? Assured to us, if we render obedience to the law governing the universe. If you love me, keep my commandments. The terms of salvation for every son and daughter of Adam are here outlined. I'm not against the four spiritual laws. Bless you, they are a part of the divine program, but they are counterfeit if they do not bring out also the law. For to know the commandments is to know God. This is why there was the expression of David, Open my eyes that I might behold the wondrous things out of the law. I want to tell you we've been losing a lot lately, allowing things to creep in and afraid to speak of the law in our Sabbath school and so forth because we might be called legalistic. There's nothing legalistic about God. God is love and his law is love. No wonder Satan hates the law, because he hates God. No wonder he doesn't want us to talk about it. He attempted to abolish the law in heaven, and that's why there was war in heaven, and that's what the great controversy is all over. It's over the law. In the Commentary, Volume 1, page 1104, Shall we trample or trample upon the law of God and say it is not binding? God might just as well have abolished himself. In the law, every specification is the character of the infinite God. Oh, how we should be studying the law. How we should be praying that it be written in our hearts. Oh, how we should be praising God that we know his law, that we are acquainted with his law. How Satan fools so many. The hearts of many are at war with God. I'm reading from volume 6 of the commentary, 1096. They are not subject to his law, only as they come into harmony with the rule of his government can Christ be of any avail to them. That's why I say when you go and you lead people to Christ, don't keep the law from them. They may accept the Christ, but they're accepting the counterfeit. For this is what she says. Only as they shall come into harmony with the rule of his government can Christ be of any avail to them. 
They may talk of Christ as their Savior, but he will finally say of them, I know you not. You have not exercised genuine repentance toward God for the transgression of his holy law, and you cannot have genuine faith. Oh, we need in leading individuals to Christ to let them see the eternal law of God, the character of God. And then they see themselves as sinners. And they see that they have not followed and in broken heartedness they cry, Oh God, have mercy upon me. And then it is that God can do something for them. Here is found the reason for the cross. The honor of God's law had to be maintained. It could not be changed, even as God cannot be changed. But man had sinned. God loves the sinner. Sin is a transgression of the law. The wages of sin is death. But God so loved the sinner, he so loved you, he so loved me, that he found a way that we could be saved. His son would give of himself a sacrifice for our sin. Those beautiful words of Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Add to that that classical gem of desire of ages 25, how I love to go over it and over it. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sin in which we had no share, in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes we are healed. Oh, what a wonderful Savior. What a God. His death showed the wonderful love of God and the immutability of his law. The greatest longing of the Christian is to be like this great Savior, to be like Jesus. But to be like Jesus is to be like God. For Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And if you want to know what God is like, Study his law. In Desire of Ages 69, the law of God is an expression of his character. As we receive the principles of the law into the heart, the image of God is traced in the mind and soul. Oh, I want to be more like God, don't you? I want the image of God traced, as we've been studying in our Sabbath school lessons. But it comes through the study of the law and the knowledge to know the law, to believe the law, and by God's grace and help to live the law is to know God and to experience the divinity of God within. Our aim should be to do the will of God. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. What was the will? Jesus said, I have kept my Father's commandments. 
Jesus did the will of God. I seek not only my own will, but the will of my Father. The law of his life was the Father's will. Desire of Ages, page 486. This is what guided him. This is what kept him. This is what molded him. And our only hope is to accept the Lord Jesus, for by an accepting Jesus, we accept his law. This is how we discover freedom. It is freedom or it is slavery. Desire of Ages 466. Every soul that refuses to keep himself, to give himself to God, is under the control of another power. He is not his own. He may talk of freedom, but he is in the most abject slavery. He is not allowed to see the beauty of truth, for his mind is under the control of Satan. While he flatters himself that he is following the dictates of his own judgment, he obeys the will of the prince of darkness. If the Son of therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets us free from the law of the sin and death. The highest sense of freedom is in surrender. What is surrender? Surrender is to stop fighting. It is submission. It is allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to take possession. Now I read in Desire of Ages, page 466, the expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. Now there's really one to think about. The expulsion of sin is the act of the soul itself. Now, how do we put this all together? True, we don't have any power in ourselves to free ourselves from Satan. But when we desire, when we plead, when we say to God, come, then he gives us of his spirit and gives us the power to do it. Desire of Ages, page 466. The powers of the soul are imbued with the divine energy of the Holy Spirit and they obey the dictates of the will in fulfilling the will of God. No wonder in the new birth God writes his law in the heart. Now what it says, Hebrews 10, 8 to 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Oh, how we should be praying for God to find our hearts so pliable and find our hearts so pliable and surrender to him that he can put his will, his law, write it on the fleshly tables of our hearts so that our experience will be that of the experience of David. He said, His delight is in the law of the Lord. Oh, how I love thy law! In his law I will meditate day and night. God's law is a fountain of life. Great peace have they that love thy law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Paul summed it all up. This is the love of God that we keep.
his commandments. But you say, oh, they're, they're so high. They're impossible for me to keep. Not without the help of God. Back in Tennessee where I used to work, the Southern Union have a lot of people called the hillbillies. One day the mother had gone off to the hospital and the father was there with a the little boy, barefoot, just a little chap. When he sat on the chair, you know, his feet were swinging. They didn't even touch the floor. And the little boy loved his father and the father loved his son. The little boy was looking up in his father's eyes and the father said, Son, will you get me some water? <laughs> they didn't have any tap. No running water. They just had a big crock and they had a ladle hanging on the wall. And the little boy, the father said, Son, will you get me a drink? And that little boy was off of that chair and he hit that floor and those little feet pattered across her and he went over there. His father's eyes were filled with love as he saw that little boy with all his heart and with all his soul trying to do what he wanted him to do. He reached up to get the ladle, but he couldn't reach it. He reached up there to the eyes. He couldn't. All he could do was just touch it with the tip of his finger. He tried, and he's on the tip of his toes, and he still couldn't do it. Finally, he said, Daddy, help me. The moment the father had bounded out of that chair and taken that little boy in his arms and lifted him up so that the boy could reach. He got the ladle, put him on the floor, and he ran over, and he put that into that crock. You know how boys are. Running back, it just spilled all over the floor, and when he got there to his father's glass, he just had one drop. He put it in there. The father took it and drank that drop. He said, son, this is the sweetest water I have ever drunk. That little fellow tried with all of his might and with all of his soul. But the good Lord, as with the Father, takes us up as we try and makes up for the difference. This is what God would have us to consider. By joining our wills with the divine will, the righteousness of Christ becomes ours. Message to Young People, page 101, as the will of man cooperates with the will of God, it becomes omnipotent. Those are tremendous words. Notice this. Message to Young People, page 31. Oh, that everyone might realize that he is the arbiter of his own destiny. Your happiness for this life and for your future immortal life lies within yourself. How is this? Volume 5, page 13. You will be in constant peril until you understand the true force of the will. You may believe and promise all things, but your promises or your faith are of no avail until you put your will on the side of faith and action. If you fight the fight of faith with all your willpower, you will conquer. Those are pretty straight and simple words. Invine Youth Instructor of 1897, 
volume 28. Let me one, let no one say I cannot remedy my defects of character. For if you come to this decision, you will certainly fail of obtaining everlasting life. The impossibility lies in your will. If you will not, then you cannot. The real difficulty arises from the corruption of the unsanctified heart and the unwillingness to submit to the control of God. I think what she's trying to say is really all summed up in this, in a letter of one, a letter that's listed as 135, written in 1893. The Spirit of God does not propose to do our part either in the willing or in the doing. This is the work of the human agent in cooperating with the divine agencies. As soon as we incline our will to harmonize with God's will, the grace of Christ stands to cooperate with a human agent. But it will not be the substitute to do our work independent of our resolving and our decidedly acting. Maybe I can illustrate this for you. I've done a lot of travel in the world. Some of these harbors are extremely dangerous. Tides come in 30 feet or more in height. Or the tide goes out and you see the rocks over here, you see the rocks over there. It's enough to frighten you, for you can see the tremendous, the, the terrible power of the water. You know that if you hit a rock, you're lost, you're gone. And so they take on the harbor pilot. And he comes on that ship. You want to know something? The harbor pilot never takes the wheel. He stands in back of the pilot and he tells the pilot what he must do. 20 degrees to the left, 20 degrees to the right, straight ahead. And if that man piloting the ship looks out and sees a rock, decides I may hit it, I'm going to turn, then he will go down. By absolute faith, he must do exactly what the pilot harbor pilot tells him to do and in doing it he will get in through God is never going to make these decisions for us he is never going to do these things for us except in that as we do as he says he supplies the power she continues therefore it is not the abundance of light the evidence piled upon evidence that will convert the soul it is only the human agent accepting the light, arousing the energies of the will, realizing and acknowledging that which he knows is righteous and truth, and thus cooperating with the heavenly ministrations appointed of God in the saving of a soul. You see, it is the Holy Spirit that God brings to our aid. In this conflict of righteousness, we can be successfully only by divine aid. Our finite will must be brought into submission to the will of the infinite. 
the human will must be blended with the divine. In the letter 44 of 1899, when the will is placed on the Lord's side, the Holy Spirit takes the will and makes it one with the divine. This is why our will, as she has stated, can become omnipotent. Those are tremendous words. By joining our will with the will of God. What is his will? It's the same as his law. Oh, I want to tell you, there should be a whole new picture developing in these last days of Seventh-day Adventists who are reaching out to have the law of God within the heart, praying for it, pleading for God to write it on our fleshly tablets, that our will then will be the same as the will of God. Great Controversy, page 468. In the new birth, the heart is brought into harmony with God as it is brought into accord with his law. When this mighty change has taken place in the sinner, he has passed from death unto life. No wonder the three angels' message, the gospel for this hour states, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments. The, I hope you received a rich blessing in listening to this tape. I surely did. Dean was so impressed, she said, we must send this tape to all our Keep the Faith friends. Bob and Burl Duff mailed it to me. It was given during a spiritual retreat in California. I am so thankful for their thoughtfulness. This sermon, given some 21 years ago, is needed more today than ever before. A divine knowledge of God's law produces real, true-blooded Adventists who will remain faithful and become genuine soul winners in finishing the work. But it is evident throughout our church leadership today that many have strayed from the truth by promoting that we preach only love and unity and join the ecumenical movement. For in this way we can fill our churches as we become like the churches of Babylon through such endeavors as celebration, drama, showmanship, entertainment, and the foot-stomping music of so-called Christian rock. But they are dead, dead wrong. Only the plain positive preaching of the law of God given in love will produce lasting converts who are brought to conviction by the Holy Spirit. Don't be intimidated by the devil's cry of legalism. Stand up for your God's character, his holy law.